0: Well, then, with a view to the help of God, let's turn to the passage that we read Isaiah and uh, Chapter Fifty Two, and reading at verse thirteen. which, as I mentioned, is is really, in a way, the text which the prophet goes on to explain and to expound. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. My servant shall deal prudently. Or even prosper. The word can mean that too. I suppose because the person who does deal prudently or wisely will prosper. Some have even said that effectively that means that he shall reign well. He shall be exalted. And extolled. And very high. Now as I mentioned last night really in looking at these verses here. The dominant emphasis is the success, you could say, of the ministry of Christ upon the earth. And the reason the prophet emphasizes it so much, I suppose, is because if you looked at that ministry from a worldly perspective, if you considered how he got on himself and uh, how his life ended and so on, you may well be tempted to think of Everything he did as a failure. Uh, but far from it. In everything God's servant does, he does it all prudently. He does it wisely, and it always prospers. And when his work is finished, he will be exalted and extolled and be very high. That means, of course, that he receives his own reward, from God for everything that he has done. But, of course, um, this promise of um, prosperity and exaltation is not going to be as straightforward as it appears. And uh, in this last great prophecy um, that Isaiah makes in connection with this servant, he draws attention to the fact that he must be brought very low first of all, and he tells us that he will sink to extraordinary depths before he rises to extraordinary heights, and both the depths to which he sinks and the heights to which he rises are a source of astonishment to all who think upon them. We're told that many will be astonished when his visage Is marred beyond that of any man. But the nations will be startled and the kings will shut their mouths at him when he is exalted into extraordinary glory, being exalted and extolled and being very high. Now, yesterday we, well, we tried to look at him anyway, being brought very low in his suffering and death. And we really focused upon why the Lord suffered. Um, It's strange that suffering should be in the life of anyone who is absolutely pure and holy. Suffering always has a connection with sin. In some kind of way or another, suffering always has a connection with sin. We have to be very careful in how we draw that connection, but it always has that connection. But why should it be in the life of the one who was wholly harmless and undefiled, who did no iniquity and no guile was found in his mouth? We saw that the answer to that is very profound, very straightforward, because the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He made all the iniquities of all his people to meet together, Upon him. He did that. He laid them on. And that is why he suffered. Now, I intended this morning to uh, go further into that, really, and to look at what he suffered and how he suffered. And um, I'm going to touch on these things, uh, but I'm not going to go into them in the depths in which I wanted to go into them, because I want to move on to his glorious exaltation. But still, it needs to be mentioned. We saw why he suffered. But what did he suffer? Well, as the father, his own father, removes from him his presence and his fellowship and his comfort, and he has to do that because that is always the penalty for sin, Uh, All sin in our life, unless it's dealt with, will be met at last with the removal of all God's comfort, his fellowship, and his presence. Well, of course, when God removes these things from the Lord Jesus Christ, he is left to the power of evil. And uh, sin is let loose. And the expression that people sometimes use, and used carelessly that all hell is let loose is true here uh, at Calvary but in a very real and profound and strict sense that all hell was let loose. The devil's energy and the energy of his legions were released upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the result is as our Saviour says in the Psalms that the pains of hell took hold upon him and he found grief trouble. Uh, We speak of that too. We can identify with that sometimes when the sense of God's judgment falls on us or we are convicted of sin or something like that. We can say the same, that it is in some measure the pains of hell that take hold upon us and we find grief and trouble, but none of us can say it as he said it. And thankfully, if we are Christians, we will never need to say it. But the pains of hell really took hold upon him, and he found grief and trouble. And, of course, the pains of hell took cold upon his body and upon his soul. And that's because in his body he was carrying our sins, and he was filled with sorrow and grief. And the prophet here tells us that he's going to be wounded. Yes, it's for our transgressions, but he's going to be wounded He's going to be bruised and again that's for our iniquities but to be bruised means to be crushed, to be absolutely crushed and he's going to be scourged because it is by his stripes that we are healed. Now the stripes refer to the wounds that the scourge leaves on your back. The the Roman scourge was an awful scourge. It consisted of a it was a whip that consisted of several leather um, uh, thongs that had sharp pieces of bone attached to them, and and really the back was scourged until the skin was off it, and and very often the administering it of it was so careless that the whip could more or less land anywhere. But these were the things that the Lord was afflicted with it and were told that he was afflicted with it to the point where there was astonishment on the part of people who looked at him. Many were astonished at you. From a distance they saw his form marred beyond that of a son of of any man. His body was mangled. Up close were told that his visage was marred literally beyond that of a man. It doesn't mean there that his visage was more marred than anybody's, uh, which may indeed be true, but that it was marred beyond human recognition. You sometimes see, if you're unfortunate enough to see it, perhaps pictures or something of someone who has been uh, severely battered beyond recognition. Well, that is what the prophet is saying in connection with the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um. That's a face that was beaten uh, by officers of the Sanhedrin. It is a face that was beaten by the Roman soldiers. Uh, He was struck with the open palms. He was struck on his head with the stick that they had to symbolize his so-called scepter. And that visage was marred beyond that of a man. Of course, a crown of thorns was famously pulled over his head too, which pulled the skin effectively down. And, well, it's marred beyond recognition. We're also told that he took all that suffering in a particular way. We're told that he suffered in silence. And that's emphasised twice, or it's emphasised by being told us twice, In verse 7 of chapter 53 we're told that he was oppressed and that he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter but again just as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. And When the Gospels are written in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is very careful to draw our attention to that. That in the presence of the Sanhedrin, he says nothing until he's put on oath and required to say something. And again, in the presence of Pilate, he says nothing. Now that's um, a remarkable silence. There was much that could have been said. The Lord could have said much in his own defense. But in some ways you can understand a silence. You can understand it at the legal level. Why should he say anything? Everyone who came forward to make accusations about his life and character, they all ended up contradicting themselves. So much so, as I mentioned recently, that when the trial was disintegrating, the high priest stood up and tore his robes, And he said to the defendant, what is this that they're saying against you? Now, it's not a judge's duty to get a defendant to explain what the accusations really are. But he's exasperated, and he puts him on oath. So why say anything when no one can make a coherent accusation against yourself? But at a spiritual level, too, you can understand his silence. After all, it was this Savior himself who told us, not to cast out pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and then turn on you and tear you apart. There are certain times which it's not appropriate to speak. There are certain people with whom it's not appropriate to share anything. And in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the time for preaching is finished. The Lord Jesus Christ had said what he had to say. And he said it plainly as he said to them for three years. He taught openly in the temple. There's nothing left to be said. And the silence in that respect becomes a silence of condemnation upon themselves. And sometimes the the worst thing that can happen to you is when God stops speaking to you and when he stops communicating. It's the worst thing of all because it's a silence of judgment. As though God has nothing more to say until He pronounces a final judgment, I suppose you'll remember that the, um, the idea came to Pilate when he was trying Christ that he, well he was finding it. He was finding it difficult himself. He decided, since he heard he was from Galilee that, and Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction, that he would send him to Herod. Herod, of course, was so glad to see him because he had many questions to answer him. And he asked them, but were told that he answered him not a word. Not a word. Why? Well, again, at the spiritual level, it was casting pearls before swine. Herod had heard enough. And the fact is that Herod just wasn't going to hear any more. And that's a solemn thought when God says, I'm not telling you anymore but I think to be honest that although all these things are true and present here I think there's a deeper reason for the silence yet and in many ways it's more profound Um, it was prophesied here that he would be silent and when Christ was silent I believe he was consciously fulfilling that prophecy in other words it's not the case that he did actually fulfill it by being silent but he was conscious of a prophecy that he ought to be silent. And that he was therefore silent. And the deepest reason for his silence lay in the fact that what, what was happening to him. Now let's be careful here. And let's understand what I'm going to say in the context of last night. And the Lord laying on him the iniquity of his all. The deepest reason for his silence is because he was being dealt with at one level justly. At every other level, it was nothing but injustice. The Sanhedrin even had no authority to meet through the night, none whatsoever, but they did it, everything had to be done, everything had to be over with before the Passover itself was kept. There was nothing but injustice at one level, but nothing but justice as at another Christ is deeply conscious that he doesn't stand there as an innocent man. He stands there as a guilty man. From the moment in Gethsemane that his father pressed the sins of his people upon him, well, that's how he's got to be dealt with. That's how he's got to be dealt with. He is the sin bearer, and every stroke he receives, even the injustice at the hands of men, is justice from the hand of God. And it's the silence of a man who is acknowledging that he is receiving a just judgment from God. The text that came to my mind when I was thinking about it from that perspective was something David said in Psalm 39. Dumb was I, opening not my mouth, because this work was thine. Now David is there speaking of a chastisement, a stroke that he's received. And he says that he's got nothing to say. The word dumb there doesn't, of course, mean stupid, as some people use it. It means simply silent. I had nothing to say, he says, and I opened my mouth because this work is thine. It may be an evil coming to me from people, but I have nothing to say because I know it has come from you. Maybe sometimes you've known such a thing yourself, that that an injustice has been done to you. Uh, You've been dealt with very roughly. Uh, maybe you've been dealt with roughly by the lord's people uh, but you've got nothing to say because you know that somehow the lord is dealing with you through it and you know that there's a chastisement in it uh, for yourself it may be an evil from the hands of the people who are doing it but it is a chastisement from god to yourself now i think that was in christ's silence he's not going to rant and rave it's a notorious fact that Uh, many of the people who were tried with a view to being crucified lost all control and uh, they would rant and rave in self-defense, protestations of innocence. And if any man could protest his innocence, it's this man, as we thought last night, which of you can convict me of sin? What have I done wrong? He could at any point have stood up and said, all these witnesses are incoherently making statements That in contradiction with one another. He could have stood up and said all that. No defense of himself. No defense of himself. I mean if any man could defend himself. This advocate could defend himself. Do you not think he could mount a case for himself. Before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate. Yes but. It's indefensible. If he is the sin bearer. If he is carrying there the sins of all his people, there's no defense to be mounted. The stroke is God's, and so he will be silent. Of course, we can look at it in terms of just the sheer, um, the spiritual stoicism, and I mean that in the best sense. The the spiritual stoicism of someone who has uh, a good, clean and pure character, yes, but there's disobedience to it. He under his father's rod. The scourging from Pilate is his father's scourging. The beating with the open palms from the officers of the Sanhedrin is a stroke from his father. And so he takes it in silence. And, of course, the result of all this suffering, and, of course, when I mentioned that suffering and when I tried to detail briefly uh, what it was, I didn't even touch the sufferings of his soul. As the Puritans said, I can't remember which one, the soul of his sufferings were the sufferings of his soul. The heart of his sufferings were the sufferings of his heart, if you like. Um, When the power of evil was unleashed, it wasn't just unleashed on his body, it was unleashed in his mind. And none of us can comprehend uh, the great evil that was wrought in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ, as He suffered for our sins, how many evil thoughts, how many temptations, how many harassments? I am conscious. Saying these things, I always have to make a, a, a distinction, and I just need to make it. The thoughts weren't His own, but they were in His mind, all right. Um, Spurgeon used to used to say that, and Bunyan too said it, and he, he, Bunyan said it in connection with Christians who are sometimes harassed by the things that are in their heads and I don't know about you but that sometimes happens with myself too I'm very distressed by sometimes what's in my head but he says a lot of these things he says, are not the product of your own heart they are things that are just darted in from outside they're put in there now it's a mystery it's hard to understand therefore it's hard to explain But the the enemy of our souls has access to our souls. He has access to the soul of Christ. He had access to the soul of Christ long before the crucifixion and the suffering. He, He was able to suggest thoughts to the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, take that stone and turn it into bread. Or go up to the temple top and cast yourself down and see if God cares for you. See if he will send his angels to preserve and to protect you, as he promised, did he not, in Psalm 91. Or just bow down before me, take the easy way, join the dark side, and there will be no grief, no trouble, and no sorrow. Join with me as the God of this world. But how much more was that access magnified at Calvary to the extent that there is that the man on the cross is fighting to retain the truth and even when he retains it he has no comfort whatsoever from it the reason for that is because the human soul is a finite thing it's a finite thing Uh, The mind can't contain all truths at once. The mind of God can, certainly so. The mind of God is so remarkable that it contains uh, real sensible knowledge of all facts at all times, at any given time. But the human mind of our Lord Jesus was not like that. And there is a fight to retain hold of the truth and of the love of God for himself And the fact that he'll come out of this. And the intensity of it is so difficult. That it's hard to see how he comes out of it. As far as the details of these things go. A holy veil is drawn over it. And we cannot in this world go behind it. As the Greek liturgy says. By thine unknown sufferings. O Lord deliver us. They are unknown. But the result of all that is that this Messiah, as the passage tells us, is cut off. And you'll remember last night I drew attention to the power in those words that he was cut off in verse 8 from the land of the living, which means he was excommunicated. Not only was he got rid of from the earth, buried in the bowels of a grave, but he was done so in such a way that made manifest that he was cut off from God, anathematized, died under a curse, that as far as they were concerned, he deserved and although they d- they assigned him a grave with the wicked, which we thought last night, and he ended up being buried to their annoyance in the grave of a rich man, still at least he's buried, and he's out of sight and uh, they, they, they so wanted that they, they so hated him and so wanted him out of sight that they obtained permission from Pilate to put a Roman seal on the stone. And to set a guard on the stone because, they said, he he spoke of rising again. He spoke of himself as being someone who lives forever. Well, put a guard on this in case the disciples come and steal away the body and pretend that he has risen. Were they afraid that he would? Well, they seem to go to awful lengths to make sure that he's in the grave and that he stays in the grave. And the Roman seal upon it, well, you can't have a bigger authority than the seal of Rome in this world. When the seal of Rome went on the tomb, it's effectively saying, do not disturb. And that, friends, should be that. He should uh, not only be dead, but stay dead. He dies accursed, out of sight, and hopefully, these Jews think, out of mind. At least after a while, people will forget that he was ever there. But then the second source of astonishment comes in. And that's what I want to consider with you this morning. The second source of astonishment, which silences kings, which silences everyone who thinks about it. And in fact, God tells us to behold it in verse 13. Think about this, he says, my servant. Yes, he will go low. But think about this, look at it, consider it, marvel at it, be silent in the face of it yourself, that my servant shall deal prudently to the point where he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. He deals wisely in all that he does. In his ministry... In his conduct, in his bearing, in his walk up to the cross, in his silence before the authorities, he deals prudently, and the result is the, his exaltation. Now, you'll notice that three terms are used for his exaltation here. He shall be exalted, and extolled, and be very high. Now, in some ways, you'd be tempted to think that these three words are just there for a for poetic poetic effect. In other words, saying the same thought in three different ways, just to deepen the impression, to make an emphasis. Because that's the way poetry works. And Hebrew poetry, in fairness, is very fond of repetition of thought. And you may say, well, here's just a threefold way of simply saying that he's going to be high. High but it's not as simple as that. The fact is that these three terms are actually saying something distinct in connection with the Lord's reward and exaltation. And the fact that they are saying something distinct only becomes plain to us in the New Testament, although there's reason, even from a close reading of the Old Testament, to expect it there anyway. Simply because of the words that are chosen. The words that are chosen are effectively saying, My servant shall be raised, he shall be lifted up, and he shall be very high. Raised, lifted up, very high. Notice the third one especially. It's different from the first two. And if the third one is different from the first two, why should the second not be different from the first? By saying the third is different, what I mean is this, that it's not talking about the activity, it's talking about the resting place. He shall be very high, that's a destination point. Raised, lifted, very high. The expression very high is the end of a process. Therefore, the first word is the beginning of the process. He shall be raised first. This process shall continue in being lifted up. And that process shall culminate in being set very high. With the Lord's help, let's look at these three. First of all, he shall be raised the first part of his exaltation is simply gloriously that he is raised from the dead, or he is raised out of the grave. And although his own hand is in it, and although the Holy Spirit is also active in it, it is preeminently described in Scripture as the act of the Father, that God raised him from the dead. Now that raising up was something that the Lord himself had prayed for. In the psalm that we sang, in Psalm 21, um, the Lord's prayers before he he goes to his um, suffering and death are profound prayers. And of course you have them in the psalms. um, Which people say, I don't have enough of Christ in them. Dear me, you can only marvel at people who say things like that when they actually contain his own words, his thoughts, his prayers, his fears and his hopes, and you don't have enough of Christ in them, as though what we say about him is more important than what he says about himself. Astonishing, really. Thou hast bestowed upon him, here is the church looking at the, at the risen Saviour, thou hast bestowed upon him all that his heart would have. And thou from him didst not withhold whatever his lips did crave. Now these are, we worry about our own prayers, and sometimes rightly so. But his prayers were always asking for what was right. They needed no mediator. He didn't need a mediator. He didn't need anyone to cleanse his prayers. He didn't need anyone to purify them. Because whatever his lips craved could be answered. When he desired life of thee, in verse 4, thou life to him didst give. When did he pray for that life? Well, certainly, absolutely certainly, we can locate such a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. When God presents the cup of suffering and death to him, and you'll remember it's a cup that he must agree to accept, but of course he says this, that I am setting the Lord before me and therefore I will, um, he will stand at my right hand and I won't be moved. And because of this, he says, my heart is glad, even now, in taking this cup, even though I've just sweated blood over it. My flesh, although I die, it's going to rest in confidence because my soul will not be left in the grave. You will not give your Holy One to see corruption. In fact, he says, you will show me the path of life. I'll get out of this death. I'll get out of this tomb. And there is a full store of joy, he says, before your face, in your face, and from your face. You could add all that, because in Psalm 21, we're told that it was the countenance of God that made his Son exceeding glad. Oh friends, we we think about the countenance of Christ making us glad, and so it will. Well, the countenance of God made himself glad, and at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. So when he prays for this life, it's a life that God is pleased to give him. And that's the life that was given to him in the grave with the streaks of the break of day on that first Sabbath morning, the first New Covenant Sabbath morning. There's something wonderful in a Sabbath being on a Sunday. Something wonderful in it. There was something wonderful in in it being on the last day of the week too, but there's something more wonderful. How shouldn't it be more wonderful? This is a better covenant. It is a new covenant. There's something wonderful about a Sabbath falling on the first day of the week. I'm noticing an increasing tendency, and it's a mark of decadence and apostasy, for some diaries to have weeks beginning on Monday. Uh, Some people think the week begins on Monday. If If you ask... Quite a lot of young people, when does a week begin? They say it begins on a Monday. A week has never begun on a Monday. Today's the first day of the week. And on the first hours of the first day of the week, life was infused into that dead body again. And the eyes opened, and the grave clothes fell away. And the life that was infused into that body is a life, of course, That shall never end. Uh, That's what Isaiah tells us here. That when when he says, you make his soul an offering for sin. In verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. And then the address is directed to God. When you make this man's soul a sin offering, he shall see his seed. I'll come to that but he shall prolong his days. It's amazing that someone who's put to death has actually just been guaranteed that he's going to rise up in a life that will never end. A life that will never end. Psalm 21 was teaching us the same thing. God did not withhold whatever his lips did crave. His lips craved life. Give me life, not just for my sake, but for my family's sake, for my people's sake give me life. And he received life even such a length of days that he forevermore should live. He's never going to die again. That precious body and that precious soul in glory today at the right hand of the Father, that precious body and soul will never be severed again. It was severed once because of sin. Severed once because of the guilt that he bore, your guilt and mine. But it will never ever be severed Again, so the one who was cut off in a cursed death is now raised to live forever. That's the first rising that he has, and it's a precious one—a rising from the dead. Uh, he is the first fruits of those who rose from the dead. No one ever rose from the dead till this point, as he rose from the dead. I'm sure most of you are aware that Christ did himself raise people from the dead. Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elijah raised someone from the dead. But not to resurrection life. They all died again. This is the first man who rose and didn't die again. And because he rose and didn't die again, so we will rise and never die again. So that is a real resurrection for you a resurrection to newness of life. And as well as being raised up, secondly, we're told that this servant shall be extolled. You might have a marginal note beside the word extolled. You just might have, depending on the Bible that you have, and the marginal note will give the alternative reading of lifted up. And how fitting that is, because that's a reference to the fact that this man's reward And this man's glory is not finished by coming back to life. Even coming back to resurrection life. He is actually being lifted up, lifted up to heaven. You'll know in the history that after 40 days of resurrection life, our Lord was visibly raised into glory. He didn't rise himself. He was raised into glory. He was lifted up by the father now he could of course have gone um, in such a way that no one saw him go after all once he was received into the cloud we don't believe that he continued rising he simply was translated into another world but for our sakes we see him being lifted up because that is communicating to us that he is being received up into glory as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, received up into glory. Now that was prophesied of him as well. The Lord Jesus knew that he would be lifted up body and soul. Psalm 68 says of him that he ascended up on high and in doing that he led captive captivity and he was going to receive gifts. Not just for himself but for men. i will come to that a little later on. That was prophesied of him. He ascended up on high and led captive captivity and received gifts for men. It was also, of course, friends prophesied in the immortal words of Psalm 24 which we read together. Let the gates of the new Jerusalem be raised. Why? For whom, the angels ask? Who is it That's demanding admission. Well, it's the king of glory that demands admission. Well then, let the gates be raised. And of course, he doesn't just come in himself, but he he comes in as the Lord of hosts. He takes in all his people with him. But when he is lifted up into glory, a part of his reward, of course, is received there too. The resurrection is part of his reward. That's new life. But he can't get any more life than he's just got then. But the ascension into glory is meaning that he receives something else. And that's the glory that he had with his father before the world was. That couldn't be achieved, as it were, on the earth. Supposing he had lived in resurrection glory on the earth forever. Well, That would not allow him to resume the glory that he had with his father before the world was. That was a glory that, well, it was enjoyed in immediate presence. It was a a glory of glorious fellowship, uh, a a glory of kingship, uh, a glory of being face to face. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And the word was towards God. We saw on Friday evening how the advocate is towards God. Well, here, the son is towards the father. And that is what he wants to be resumed. And with the ascension, that's what he has. Uh, When he enters after 40 days, body and soul into the presence of God, he is back with the father resuming that glory which he had before the world was. He hadn't known it in his human condition. All he had known hitherto was humiliation. But now in his human condition, he shares a glory with his Father. That is the second part of his reward. So he is raised in resurrection. He is lifted up in his ascension. But then we are told that his exaltation goes even higher than that. He's not just risen, and not just lifted up, but he goes higher still. My servant shall be very high. Very high. That's the end of the process. It's the termination point. But how high that height actually is? And how high is it? Well, it's the height that he attains to when he is invested With formal kingship, he is crowned with glory and honor, and he is sat down at the right hand of God with all authority formally given him in heaven and upon the earth. This is the coronation of one who is now publicly in glory acknowledged to be the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That is what you could call a hyper-exaltation. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul calls it in Philippians 2. He uses that, that Greek word "hooper" or hyper, and he describes it um, of what happened to Christ in his exaltation. Um, we're told, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. Now, we can't forget that. This sublime statement about um, what Christ became and what he became in order to become something, it's told us with a view to keep us humble. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ, who being in the form of God and who did not consider it a robbery to be equal with God. He's thereby right. That's who he is. That's what he is. But nonetheless, being like that, he made himself of no reputation, which in the Greek language means that he emptied himself. And he took upon himself the form of a bond servant. And he came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, genuinely so, look at him, yes, that's what he is. Being found like that, he humbled himself still further and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. That's a hyper humiliation. To die cursed is a hyper humiliation. But therefore, he says, God has hyper exalted him. Exalted him very high, as the prophet said. Very, very high. How high? Well, so high that God has given him the name that is above every name. What name is that? When you read on immediately, you think it's the name Jesus, because it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Jesus' Saviour is quite a common name. Um, thousands of people have had it down through the years. It's the name Joshua, um, very common name amongst the Jews. That's not the name he was given at his exaltation. You need to read on. At the name Jesus, every knee will bow, of those in heaven and of those in earth, and even those under the earth. That means the, those who are resurrected. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Jehovah. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a New World Translation and one of its characteristics is so that wherever they can put the name Jehovah in, where you find Lord, they'll put the name Jehovah in. Amazingly, they don't put it in here. Where it's crying out for it. Where it's crying out for it. Because the great statement that is being made regarding this man at his right hand, this Jesus who they knew in his humiliation, is that Jesus is Jehovah. And when that statement is made, Paul tells us it is a statement that is made to the glory of God the Father. Now, Isaiah the prophet himself tells us that God is jealous of of the glory of his own name. My glory, he says, I will not give to another. But when Jesus is Jehovah, it's to the glory of the Father. It's as though... It's as though the Father is saying at the coronation, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when I am investing him just now with every conceivable authority here in heaven and down there upon the earth, I give him that seat of authority that belongs to the Lord alone because that's who he is. And that's why uh, Jehovah's Witnesses Always impale themselves on the horns of a dilemma. By making Christ a creature, by making him less than God, they end up in different ways committing idolatry. The fact of the matter is that the one who sits on this throne today is called Jehovah too. And the Father does not mind that one whit because that's who he is. It's a a kind of a statement of identity. Um, Here at his baptism, this is my son, and I'm pleased with him. I've been pleased with 30 years of his life, and now begins his ministry. At the transfiguration, halfway point, this is still my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with him. And again, He is declared to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead and he goes home to glory. This is my beloved son. He was dead. Behold, he is alive again. He divested himself of his glory and here he is glorified with all authority in heaven and on earth. So Isaiah is telling us that he stoops as low as he possibly could And then he is raised as high as he possibly could be. But you'll notice that Isaiah doesn't stop there either. Because he goes on to emphasize what the Lord Jesus Christ does on his throne. What he does there. And what he does there as a king is not just for himself. But it's for his people. And I suppose you could put it in a nutshell by saying that as a king he sits there wielding the rod of universal power as king of kings and lord of lords so that the pleasure of God will prosper in his hand. If you look at verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. But when you make his soul a sin offering, here is the result. In his exhortation he shall see seed, he shall prolong his days, and the Lord's pleasure will prosper in his hand. Now what's the Lord's pleasure? Well, the Lord's pleasure is that a church should be formed and gathered from the four corners of the earth. That they should be justified, sanctified and glorified and brought into this heavenly glory along with himself. Now that's a task that only God can accomplish. But lo and behold, he puts it into his hand. He says, I am putting a scepter of all authority in heaven and earth into your hand. And my pleasure will prosper in your hand. When I leave the administration of everything in the world to you, he says, I know that my pleasure will prosper in your hand. Why? Because he deals wisely all the time. He deals wisely and he deals prudently. He dealt wisely and prudently on the earth. And here on his throne in heaven, he's going to deal wisely and prudently as well. It's all safe in his hands. Uh, we like to take comfort in the sovereignty of God. And in some ways, it's not always good to distinguish the persons of the Trinity, but to leave them undivided, as it were, in their mutual indwelling. But it's good to remind ourselves that the sovereignty of the world and the cause of Christ on the earth is not in the hand of God's implicator, but in the hand of your Saviour. It's his hand, the hand that was working so assiduously on your behalf that's the hand that wields the scepter and will see to it that it'll be all right. It'll be all right for yourself and for all the Lord's people. It'll be all right. And you'll notice how he describes the prospering of this cause. It's all to do with portions in verse 12. Once our Lord goes to glory the Father says I will divide him A portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. It's all to do with portions. First of all, Christ gets his own portion. And the portion that he receives is everything. He is an heir of God. He is the firstborn son. He's not a son by adoption like you are. We're, today we're sons and daughters by adoption. We're going to get our portion too, and I'll come to that in a minute. But it's the firstborn who gets it all first. It's all put into his hands. He's not there by adoption. He's there by eternal generation. That's a, that's a remarkable thing. There was, there was never a point at which he was not a son and at which the father was not his father. When we think of father and son, we can't help but make a distinction in time, that the father must be there before the son. Absolutely, because we are finite creatures in time. But in connection with the eternal one, the father and the son were both always there, except in that relation. They never did not exist, except as father-son. Always a son, always a father and he receives the portion. And if you're to ask, well, what portion does this servant receive when he goes home, when he's crowned with glory and honor, when he's sat down at the right hand of the Father, what is his portion? What does he get? Well, the answer to that is that he gets absolutely everything. He gets the church And he gets everything that the church needs for her life because that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted. Uh, He was always God. There was nothing that he lacked in that respect. But he wanted a church. He wanted you and me. He wanted our life and he wanted our fellowship. That's why he divested himself, emptied himself. And came into the world to get this portion. To get this portion. And this portion was a church and everything that that church needed. The church is a special possession and everything she needs, well, he's bought that too. All that she needs in this life and what she needs in the life to come. You'll notice that this portion is actually called a spoil. I don't know if that's ever perplexed you in verse 12. I will divide him a portion and he shall divide the portion which is certainly called a spoil. He'll divide it with the strong. Why is this portion that God gives him in heaven, the church and all she needs, why is it called a spoil? Well, because it's the plunder of war. It's the plunder of war. In other words, Christ fought for it fought a battle for it. That battle culminated, of course, in Calvary. And he won it. He won it. He won the church. He won the bride. He fought for the bride. And he won the bride. And he won all that the bride needed for her comfort and her peace and her happiness. Every husband wants that for his wife. Every real husband does anyway. He wants her happiness, her contentment, And her peace. And he won that. Of whom? Well, you know, friends, that everything we could have had, we lost. We lost it all. Adam had everything. Well, when I say everything, uh, I'd like to qualify that. In one respect, Adam and Eve had everything. The only thing they lacked was what God would have given them had they stayed that way. And God had plenty to give. What what he had given them was just the start. But had they remained true and loyal, there was a lot more to give. So when we fell from our purity and holiness, when Adam and Eve fell in their purity and holiness, they didn't just lose what they had, they lost what they could have had. They lost it all, what they had and what they could have had. And that could only come back by conflict. And make no mistake that our Lord and Saviour was fighting a battle in his life. And all his enemies knew that one sin meant that he could never recover any of it again. What was required on his part was purity, absolute obedience, covenant faithfulness. I mean, he's these people's representative heads. If he's going to get back what they lost and if he's going to get back what they could have had he needs to stand, he needs to fight and he fought and he stood and he was triumphant. That famously is the reason why although he appeared well it didn't just appear but when he was so exhausted on the cross he raised his head in triumph and said it is finished. I fought the good fight. And I have crushed the head of the serpent. He was crushed. Yes, he was crushed himself for our iniquities. Crushed. Ah, but not finally crushed. That indignity belonged to the devil. So we purchased back not just what we lost, but all that we could have had. And that's why, of course, Our place in glory is higher than Adam's place in the garden. That's why the paradise to which we're going, friends, is greater than the paradise that Adam and Eve walked in. Because the portion that Christ got is a spoil of war and contains what could have been as well as what was. That's a full cup. That's a full portion. And you'll notice then that this portion or spoil that Christ has given by God, which includes everything, is actually shared out. Because at the end of verse 12, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's going to share the inheritance with his family. Now, that was the firstborn's duty. So the father gives everything to the firstborn. The firstborn's responsibility then is to take it and to distribute it fairly among the family. That may or may not happen. In a sinful world. Oh but it happens in this world. It happens in this heavenly world. And it happens in connection with this firstborn son. He shares it with the family. Who are the family? <laughs> One of the things they cast in Christ's face. On the cross in verse 8. Is when he's taken from prison. When he's taken from arrest. And from judgment. From the formal judgment of the Sanhedrin, Which they thought was godly. Isn't it amazing how a church court can produce a sentence that is directly the opposite of what the Lord wants it to be? He's taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? Because he's cut off. The Hebrew expression means who's going to declare his family? Who is he going to generate? Where are his children? There he is at 33 years of age, at the prime of his life, and he thought he was the king, and he thought he was the king of the Jews. So much for his kingship. So much for his dynasty. Not only is he dying there. God forsaken and God forgotten. But there's no one to take up the torch. There's no son. There's no daughter. Short lived dynasty. King of the Jews. For a moment in time. Oh how wrong people are. How wrong these assessments. No wonder the, no wonder the repentant Jew who's Speaking in this chapter says, how wrong did we get it? How wrong are you getting it in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ if you're not understanding who he really is and where he is today? How wrong can you get it? No, verse 10 tells us that when the Lord bruises him and puts him to grief, when the Lord makes him a sin offering, he shall see his seed. Family. He shall see the labour of his soul. He's giving birth on the cross. It's a spiritual labour. His agonies and his pains are the pains of a woman giving birth. Giving birth to what? To a church. In other words, part of the portion that God gives him. Just think about this. Part of the portion that God gives him at his right hand is the authority of this is amazing, the authority to infuse his own life into fallen, sinful, devilish men and women in such a way that they are born again into his likeness and become children of God as he is a child of God himself. That, friends, is absolutely astonishing. And astonishing is what our salvation is from first to last. And not only does he have a seed, a royal family. What a royal family. I don't know if you ever noticed the way that chapter 53 just slides into 54. Look how 54 opens. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Now here's the here's church. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. In other words, the church is never going to be as wealthy and prosperous as when she is, when her saviour dies. And in verse 2, this is a wonderful call. Enlarge your tent, he says. This tent is too small. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling place. Don't spare, he says, because you can't make it big enough. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, because, he says, you're going to expand to the right And you're going to expand to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and will make the desolate cities inhabited. That's it. And when this seed are taken home, he apportions all that they need in his great wisdom. We're told in verse 11 that by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. By his knowledge. A couple of ways of taking that and I'm not going to confuse it by, by bringing them both before you. I'm just going to tell you what I think it means in the context. What I think it means in the context is that his, his knowledge at God's right hand and his ability to administer that knowledge will ensure that he justifies many. And I think here, at least on this occasion alone, the word justify is meant to include everything. He's going to take them from the darkness and the bowels of where they are and he's going to bring them into glory. He'll do that by his knowledge. He knows how to send his spirit. He knows how to convert a soul. He knows how to take somebody that's in the dregs of a lost condition and produce in them the character of God. He knows how to infuse his own life into a person So that they will repent and believe the gospel and hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'll notice too that everyone receives an astonishing share of the portion. Ephesians 1 tells us that every single one of God's people is blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He'll see to it that that that's your portion. Starts here. But friends, as Christians, our life has only just begun. I feel sorry for the world whose life is just always getting to a close. I mean, it doesn't matter how young you are. You're dying. You're dying. We're not. We're just starting to live. Just starting to live. And the portion means that every spiritual blessing and heavenly placing belongs to every Christian Man and woman. Now we're all vessels of a different size. But all these vessels will be filled full. With all the blessings that you can contain. Because that's God's will for you. And he will see then of the fruit of his labor. And he shall be satisfied. He shall see the labor of his soul. He shall see the fruit of the labor. Labor there means the fruit of it. Let's say I was a builder and I built a house, and let's say I looked at the house, and let's say I said to someone i'm looking at the labor of my hands. You immediately know that what I mean is that i 'm looking at the result of the labor of my hands that 's what it means here, as this church is brought home to glory, even as she 's being fed on earth i 'm seeing of the labor of my soul, and i 'm satisfied. Uh, I'll leave the little bit I have to say and it is really one more thought but I'll leave it to the table. Now of course in uh, fencing the Lord's table I think we need to recognise that we have all been given our tokens and uh, we are already sitting at the Lord's table. Uh, Normally we come to it but in some circumstances we are already sitting at it. And if you are here Uh, by the way, in membership in another uh, Reformed Evangelical Church, then please join with us at the table if you have not already done so. It's customary just to state briefly who should be there. The table is being fenced week by week, and I hope we understand that. But just in connection to, in connection with the things that were said recently, as um, was brought before us on the Thursday evening, Have you yourself seen the one that you have pierced and have you learned to mourn for your own sins and to consider the price that was paid for you? In connection with even what was brought before us on Friday evening, is it your goal today that you sin not? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Is your longing to be Christ-like? Are you able to say that you are enlisting the services of an advocate? Are you looking to Jesus Christ as your only hope and as the forgiver of your sin and as your Lord in life? And as you're coming today to the table of the Lord, do you discern, as Paul says, his body and blood? In other words, what is the meal to you? What is it to you? Is it something that you do just to be part of a group? Is it something that you do because you think you just have to do it to get to heaven? Or is it something that you do because you really value it? You know what the symbols speak of. You value that body. You value that blood. You value that life. You value that death. You value his kingly intercession at the right hand and the scepter that he stretched out over you these things matter to you in fact they're your all they're your everything everything else is seen in the light of that and in some ways just pale into insignificance in comparison with that if these things are true then surely the lord's table belongs to you Now we read on the night in which the Lord was betrayed uh, an authority for observing the Lord's supper. He tells us that that's the Apostle Paul tells us that he received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread We should remember, really, that we're sitting at a table. At least that's how we're to see ourselves. We just remain seated at the table as we say grace, as we ask God's blessing, not upon an ordinary meal, but upon a spiritual meal. And uh, let's do that and call together on the name of the Lord. Our gracious God... And our Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you for all the provisions you have made for us in this life. Everything needful to see us through this valley as strangers and pilgrims until at last we descend, the, ascend the Mount of the Lord. And uh, we praise you for the green pastures and for the still waters, and the rod and the staff that comfort us, and for providing a provision for us, even in the presence of our enemies. And there are many devils and demons who are out to do harm, but they cannot help themselves being observers of the fact that you nourish your people. And we are witnesses of these things too, and what we have before us are tokens, that the Lord has loved us, that he loves us still and will love us forever, that we are in a banqueting house and the banner over us is love. We bless you for the fellowship that there is at the Lord's table. And although in one way our eyes are firmly fixed upon our Lord and the body that is broken and the blood that is shed, still we are thankful for brothers and sisters who are with us too. Oh, may we always be companions of those who love and fear your name. We delight that there are old and young here, that there are men and women that there are rich and poor, and you bring your people from the north and the south and from the east and the west, and you give us to sit with your people in heavenly places and in glory itself. We remember those who can't be at this table today, but who would love to be, and we pray that you would be their portion, whether they are restrained by work and by distance or by old age or infirmity, O grant that they too would be partakers of Christ, even as we are partakers of Christ. We remember our brother who is at the table for the first time and pray that this may be the beginning of many and ask that you would strengthen and encourage him On this pilgrimage. O Lord do us good. We don't know how long we have. In this world. But the best wine is kept to the end for your people. And there is no supper on this earth comparable. With the marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward. To all that you have for us. Bless the portion we receive. Turn this morsel of bread and this mouthful of wine into powerful symbols and even carriers of our Lord's great grace to our needy, hungry, and thirsty souls. In the precious name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. Now, just really we have been thinking about these things over the last few days and in some ways... It makes a table address maybe rather redundant. But at the same time, can I just bring one thought before you? And it is really one. And it's in connection again with that spoil that the Savior um, divides with us. You'll notice that he receives it from the Father. And then he divides it himself. So he gets it from the Father. And he's in charge of the division. But we're told that he divides the spoil with the strong. The strong is a strange way to describe uh, you and me. And particularly, I suppose, when it comes to the Lord's table, we very often feel ourselves to be weak rather than strong. But as John reminds us in his first letter, he tells us that we are strong because. The word of God dwells within us because Christ himself by his spirit dwells within us and therefore we are overcomers. And even as Christ overcame, we too are overcoming. The fact that you're sitting here again at the Lord's table, hungry and thirsty, is a sign that you're overcoming. You can look at other parts of your life and say, what progress am I making? But if you're here hungry and thirsty, still today testifying with the Lord's people, you are overcoming and you are strong because you're strong in the Lord. You're weak in yourself and there's no harm in that. If you're weak, mourning your own deficiency, sometimes what you feel to be your hopelessness, that doesn't matter. When I am weak, I am strong. And when I am weak at the Lord's table, I am strong in the Lord. And that's how the Lord wants us to be. You'll notice too that when he divides the spoil with the strong, that, that division of spoil is not something that's confined to heaven. That's where you get the main part of your inheritance. But there is such a thing as a down payment. There is such a thing as a pledge. Many pledges that the Lord gives. He gives some of the spoil here in this world. The eternal life itself that you have in your heart right now is part of that spoil. And so is this table. I often say at a Lord's table that there's such a contrast between the Christian meal and the meals of other religions and even the world's meals. Uh, The world looks at that and says, well, what's that? What's that? Well, that is spoil. That's part of Christ's portion. And Christ will see to it that the reception of the bread and the wine will infuse life and strength into your body. Not because the bread and the wine carry any power, they don't, but they symbolize that which carries power. And that's Christ himself. There's enough power attached to him, to the fruit of his death, and to the fruit of his heavenly intercession. That'll keep you going. If you don't feel strong today, This will help you. I can guarantee you if you're coming in your weakness and in your faith to the Lord that this will help you. The spoil is for the weak to make them strong and to help them in completion of their journey. And in the light of that, I don't want to keep these tokens, symbols, and even more than that. I don't want to keep them from you. It's written that on the night in which he was betrayed, He took bread and he broke it. And that breaking is a symbolizing of the fact that his visage was more marred uh, and his form beyond that of any man. Not a bone broken, strangely, because God ordered it that way. No bone broken, but flesh torn apart. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, sealed by my blood. So often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. That's a reminder to you that you yourself are preaching and you're proclaiming the worth of this death, the preciousness of this death, and his seed shall proclaim it until he comes again. Let's uh, sing in conclusion in Psalm 16 and uh, singing verses, well, from verse 5 where, Again, the speaker you'll remember is the Savior himself, and he, he's looking at his portion. God is of my inheritance, and cup the portion. It's remarkable how he says that when he's confront, confronting a very different kind of cup. The lot that fallen is to me, thou dost maintain alone. That's his heavenly inheritance. Unto me, happily, the lions in pleasant places fell, yea, the inheritance I got in beauty doth excel and we can say the same thing too in verse 10 because my soul in grave to dwell shall not be left by thee nor wilt thou give thine holy one corruption to see only he can say that but because he said that we can say this verse 11 thou wilt me show the path of life of joys there is full store before thy face at thy right hand our pleasures evermore. 5 and 6 and 10 and 11, and we stand to sing.